1: Everything the Bank of Canada does these days gets a lot of attention and that is because of all the economic uncertainty out there. So they raise rates like they did yesterday and of course there's all sorts of discussion about that. They don't raise rates, there's all sorts of discussion about that. And more and more it's almost become a bit of a political football. And you've heard different parties weighing in with their thoughts on, you know, the Bank of Canada, the role, what they would do if they were kind of in power. We heard it this week as well when NDP leader Jagmeet Singh said on Tuesday that the Bank of Canada must remain independent, but said the bank's policymakers should also look to minimize job losses in a possible recession. Okay, so does the Bank of Canada take direction from politicians? Does the Bank of Canada worry about what politicians are saying at this point? Joining us now to talk more about this is Nelson Wiseman, who's a Professor Emeritus of Political Science at the University of Toronto. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Good morning, Simi.
1: Is this something that we have seen before, Nelson? Is it common for the Bank of Canada to become like a discussion, like a political talking point?
2: Uh, well, actually, 60 years ago, it was a major talking point. It was There was a major crisis between the Bank and the old Conservative Diefenbaker government, which I believe ended up firing... Uh, James Coyne, uh, who was the governor of the Bank of Canada, but the relationship between the, you know, that's a very long time ago, and the relationship between the Bank of Canada and the government has changed dramatically. In fact, it's changed dramatically uh, around the world, and we live in a very different kind of world now. It's much more globalized, and there's much more interconnection among uh, the global financial system. So, uh... So when you ask the question, yes, uh, the bank has been involved in political controversy in the past. And uh, let's remember, the Bank of Canada is less than 100 years old. It was only formed in 1935, but its mandate has changed. Another time there was some conversation about the bank was when rates were very high. I think that was at the turn of the sort of late 80s, early 90s, -hmm. when we had remarkably high rates. You know, at one point, I I remember, you could get 22% on a GIC. I saw that once at a a company in downtown Toronto. Well, that led to a lot of conversation, but the Bank of Canada stuck with its line, and uh, there was no um, direction from the government, which is the case right now. So I wouldn't want to exaggerate, you know, uh, about... Uh, this is what I find interesting. The, the story, the reason this story is getting attention is because, as you correctly pointed out, politicians have started talking about it. We had mm-hmm. Pierre Polyev talking about firing the governor of the Bank of Canada. And now we have Jagmeet Singh, although, as you said, he says, no, no, the bank should remain independent. He's just giving them gratuitous advice, saying, you know, maybe you should hold up on it. Uh, on increasing interest rates and see how the rates you've increased to date, which is which has been quite dramatic, play out. Uh, but uh, you know, the Bank of Canada is going to stick with its mandate and it's independent, and I think it's going to continue uh, to operate that way.
1: Right. What about other countries, Nelson? Is this is this similar to what happens in other, say, G seven countries?
2: Yes, it's very similar. Where Canada is somewhat different is Canada seemed to be a leader, to be a, 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 the, the leader in starting to raise interest rates as dramatically. It may ve- and it might continue to be a leader in the sense that it's now cut back from going uh, seventy-five uh, uh, basis points. That's three quarters of a percentage point increase in the last uh, round to just. Uh, half a percent or 50 basis points yesterday. Uh, Now the um, Federal Reserve, which is in effect the central bank in the United States, is going to come down with a decision in early November. And I wouldn't be surprised if they also increase uh, their overnight lending rate there by only half a percentage point as opposed to three quarters. We'll see. And if they do, it'll again indicate, you know, Canada's been leading here. And let's remember, um, what's very different between now and what you had, let's say, 60 years ago, when James Coyne, the governor, was in a fight with uh, the Diefenbaker government, is that uh, you know markets are so globally interconnected now. So if you've got a, a, a financial meltdown in one country, it spreads to other countries in the 90s. It happened in Thailand. And, and and then years later in Mexico, nothing like that, uh, nothing happening in Thailand, I assure you, in the 1950s or 60s would have affected any, anything else right. in the rest of the world.
1: I, you wonder, though, like, obviously, when times are tough, we require kind of more guidance from a bank like the Bank of Canada then. Like, look at what is happening in the UK. Is that a similar relationship? Because there's all sorts of questions about what's happening there.
2: Well, yes. I mean, the danger was that all of us, if the if financial markets stopped trusting what the government is doing, what happened in the UK wasn't set off by the Bank of England. It was set off by uh, political decisions, which was to cut taxes at a time uh, when when the government was not only heavily in debt, but was uh, calling for uh Uh, tax cuts especially for the rich so politically that didn't work very well and spending huge gobs of money and not explaining where is that money going to come from there was just this assumption oh the economy will keep growing then they had a problem that their pension funds uh, couldn't be sustained so then the bank of england intervened and it brought down uh, the uh, uh, the government in england and, and, I assure, and it's interesting, you mentioned political pressure here. You notice since Poliev has been elected leader of the Conservative Party, he hasn't once mentioned getting rid of the governor of the Bank of Canada. If he did that, uh, you would see the Canadian dollar drop by another nickel overnight.
1: Wow. Okay, and that would—that's a big deal. So there's clearly a big role here. Do you think politicians in this country, though, Nelson, have they learned their lesson, or do you feel like it's kind of creeping up here where this might be an issue coming up?
2: Well, it's certainly an issue in the media. I mean, people have a vested interest in what interest rates are. Look at the mortgages that are coming due. Look at the uh, interest they're paying on their credit cards. Uh, But every situation. Uh, even when interest rates are going up or down, is unique. And what's very different this time is we have an incredibly tight labor market. I've never seen so many places openly posting signs now hiring, and so this and and that usually doesn't happen when you've got a rapid increase in interest rates because businesses don't have the money to keep reinvesting and and uh, because they'd have to pay such high interest yet here we are the labor market is very very tight where Jagmeet Singh is spot on is that uh wages aren't haven't been going up in the past year at the same rate as prices yes maybe they've gone up 4 or 5% but when you've got yeah. inflation running at 7 8% or or 11% for food uh you know those don't square. We don't have signs yet that we're uh, moving into an era of much higher unemployment. And there are all kinds of factors for this, including um, more baby boomers that are now retiring. So um, that uh, is having an effect of more uh, vacancies there,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and uh, well, you don't have enough labor. Immigration could could um, uh, is one of the uh, solutions here you've got to bring in more people. problem is there's a mismatch between the people we're bringing in and the kinds of jobs that they have to fill so it could be unemployment will right. rise now, but uh, will somebody who's been uh, let's say um, i don't know working in um, in a tech industry all of a sudden want to start putting in drywall or yeah. or working as a carpenter they don't even have those skills so is- you've got that trade-off
1: there. That is very, very true. Um, Nelson, thank you so much for joining us. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have
0: a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Thank you, Simmy. This is Mornings with Simmy on 980 CKNW. Well, Raji Sohal is with us this morning.
1: Good morning, Raji.
0: Good morning. I
3: remember this song when I, I was love a it. kid. And I had no idea at that young age what the song was about. So whenever I heard these love songs, and getting weak in the knees or whatever I always thought about it very physically literally you were like oh she's she's
1: not feeling well she's not not feeling well that must be what it is Uh, we're going to talk about airline fees this morning and boy this one I tell you I knew this was coming I'm, I'm not gonna lie I knew sooner or later this was going to happen
3: This was going to happen here because we've been seeing it happen elsewhere. It's been very popular in UK and Europe. Well, Sunwing, which is a very popular, low-cost airline with Canadians going to sun destinations, they've now added a new, they're calling it, (laughs) adjustment to baggage fees policy. And now they're charging $25 each way. For additional carry-on luggage and you might be thinking oh okay like my small suitcase I now have to pay for that I knew that was coming but no this means you can take your purse uh, free or that's included rather but a small backpack uh, like a reasonable sized backpack I should say uh, no that's considered additional carry-on now so you're going to be paying an extra $50 for that and I think Simi that During the pandemic, at least in my circle, I saw a lot of travelers became just experts at how to pack so light that they could avoid checking bags. Yes, you
1: have to. If you're going to lose my baggage, if you are going to pile it up at Pearson Airport and not know where it goes, then yes, I am going to pack light and take that suitcase with me on board the plane. And now their workaround for that is we're going to charge you for that.
3: Yeah. So the bonus with doing that is, like you said, you could avoid that graveyard of luggage at at Pearson and anywhere else, really. Um, but now, yeah, this bonus of, uh, of saving that little bit of cash by doing it carry on, you can't do that anymore. Now you'll have to pay extra 50 bucks for that. So my big question is whether this prevents the customer from buying that ticket or are they just going to go? Are they going to shop elsewhere? You know, I don't think it actually will change things for people. Anything for people. I think it's just going to be like, okay, now I dislike traveling a little bit more.
1: Oh, that's what it's definitely going to feel that for sure. But this is going to catch on. So you're talking about Sunwing here announcing that. But you know, I was recently looking at booking a flight on JetBlue, which has one flight that they have one route that comes in and out of Vancouver, but they're very popular in the United States and they do this they've been doing this for a long time they regularly charge for this that you yeah. do pay to put any kind of small suitcase or you know backpack on board if you take it with you carry on they charge you for that so i think this is going to it's only a matter of time before more airlines do this
3: See, I'd pay extra for a seat upgrade, no problem. More comfy seat to be closer to the front, that's fine. I'll pay extra for that. But paying for carry-on makes me feel cheap because I know the airline is doing it because they are cheap. And in April, I flew from Amsterdam to London and I had to pay for an extra bag just because I wanted to bring some gifts to my friends there. And that bag came back empty once I gave everyone their presents, obviously, but the airline had made that extra bag fee a both ways deal. So they wouldn't let me just buy one
1: suitcase one way. So I ended up paying for nothing. They will milk every... They will will squeeze (laughs) every dollar out of us, Raji. And you know what? Because we want to travel... We're still going to pay it. Uh, Thank you for that. Thanks, Simi. That's our Raji hall there. Are you prepared to pay that? Are you prepared to pay to put your suitcase now as a carry-on? This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Right now, we're going to talk about some new research that takes a look at the challenges that women healthcare providers experience, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. It really did contribute to heightened moral distress. And that's a lot of information that they are providing now to the issue of professional burnout and how to deal with that. So joining us to talk more about this is Julia Smith. Julia is a Simon Fraser University Assistant Professor in Health Sciences. Julia, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I would imagine this is very valuable research, so we would like to believe that we wouldn't make kind of the same mistakes again. What did you take a look at?
4: We conducted interviews and focus groups with almost 90 women healthcare workers across a range of professions. And we started really just asking them about their experiences during covid and through those conversations, we identified a common theme of moral distress. So, moral distress is the experience of not being able to provide the care you believe is ethically required because of external constraints. And this puts a great emotional and mental health burden on healthcare providers when they're in these conflicting situations that can have residual effects. So, we know moral distress is associated with higher levels of burnout and of people consequently leaving the profession.
1: Right. So was it people who felt like they constantly weren't being able to do the job that they wanted to do?
4: Yes. And not only the job they wanted to do, but the job they felt ethically obliged to do. Because as, he- as healthcare care workers, of course, they're in a very important role of ensuring somebody else's well-being, sometimes their life. So healthcare care workers, you know, like I, I remember a nurse describing having to stop and put on all the PPE equipment when somebody in another room is crashing and not getting in there fast enough and that person dying. Or long-term care workers describing not being able to bathe residents for multiple weeks because they were understaffed and feeling just so sick about that. And really, you know, that was a traumatic experience for them as well because they knew that these people needed better care but they just did not have the resources to provide it.
1: Oh, Julia, even those ones just having you describe it sounded awful. And we're talking about people who were going through that day after day, weren't they?
4: Yeah, definitely. People who, you know, a repeat experience. Um, this research was conducted mostly in 2021, but I imagine that many people are continuing to go through these experiences because of a continued um, crisis in our healthcare system.
1: Yeah, did we did, I guess did we forget about that part that we thought oh it's over we're all moving on but the fact that there's probably many workers out there still dealing with the after effects of this.
4: Definitely. I think um you know COVID hopefully for most of us COVID infections last a few days and you know and then they're over but but moral distress which has been part of the COVID experience for healthcare workers can last, you know, for years. The effects can last for years. Women spoke to us about the experiences on their mental health, also their physical health, um, and their overall well-being.
1: How many people do you estimate? How many women in the field of healthcare did you estimate kind of had these feelings?
4: It's hard to draw an estimate from a qualitative study like this. They said we interviewed about ninety women. Um, I think that this has probably been a, a widespread experience throughout over the last few years. I would also say that we focus specifically on women because we also identified experiences of moral distress at home. Most women do the majority of health um, care in their home, child care, elder care, that type of work. And we, when we asked them about their experiences during COVID, they not only talked about their experience at work, but also going home and struggling to provide homeschooling support to their children in need because they were working extra hours at work or being fearful about providing care to the elders and their family when they recognized they had heightened risk of COVID infection. And so we identified this with sort of this double whammy of double di- of moral distress mm-hmm. that was experienced particularly by women.
1: Julia, is there any way to determine like what would help? How can we help people who are recovering from this? And how can we make sure this doesn't happen again?
4: Yeah, the women I spoke to... They were, you know, taking on some strategies themselves around getting themselves mental health support and counseling around um, connecting with peers, trying to advocate for changes in their work environment. Uh, They also had a lot of good ideas about how to address the issue. One theme that came up was they wanted more say in decision-making. They felt that decision-making often happened far away from the front lines, and as frontline workers, they wanted to have input. They also talked about the benefit of having mental health support on-site, so it wasn't something they had to go and try and find time to do after work, but they could, while at work, um, when they're already there, seek out counseling or other mental health support. A lot of women also talked about the need for accessible childcare, especially for strict workers. Many people really struggled with childcare, and that impacted their ability to do their jobs and also um do their, you know, their also most important job of caring for their children.
1: All right. So challenging for them. Julia, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. That is Julia Smith, Simon Fraser University Assistant Professor in Health Sciences, talking about the researcher that they did. She led the study that was recently published in the journal Nursing Ethics, taking a look at women healthcare providers and the stress that they felt during the COVID 19 pandemic, which they said this heightened kind of moral distress they had really contributed and had, does contribute to ongoing professional burnout. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. We had a very easygoing September, October, and then we really started to get worried about drought. But now fall is here. Winter is upon us. The storms are arriving. And really, this first one today is causing a lot of concern. So yes, we have this approaching atmospheric river hitting our coast today. And you know what? BC Hydro has some warnings for us, too. So joining us now is Susie Reeder, spokesperson for BC Hydro. Good morning, Susie. Hey, good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here because I know there's a lot of concern. I've been reading about this this week. So you're worried as well about a lot of the trees out there, aren't you?
5: Yeah. So two summers of this extreme heat and very little precipitation this fall, as well as what turned out to be somewhat of a quiet storm season on the wind front last year have resulted in this sort of unprecedented number of weakened and dead trees, especially on the south coast. So, Now that what is known as traditional storm season uh, has arrived, we're just warning our customers to be prepared for potentially more of these weather-related power outages uh, than usual. And um, yeah, the drought conditions have had this significant impact on trees. But just reminding customers too, that's only one of the number of stressors that have impacted vegetation. So there was last year's heat dome and then there was the flooding last fall um, numerous ice storms. It's just been years and years um, of impacts to vegetation, and it's kind of coming to this critical point right now.
1: Yeah, it really does feel that way too, especially with the the rain that we've had in the last week being soaked up into the ground and these trees. So, are you are you are more crews going to be on alert over the next couple of days? Like, how does that work for BC Hydro?
5: Yeah, absolutely. So all our crews are on standby, and then we have the ability to call in contractor crews if the situation worsens. And we do have 55 um, stations across the province, so we are well-positioned to to handle things in each area um, should conditions worsen. And right now, um, what we're seeing uh, so far is that the conditions right now are kind of reminiscent to 2015, um, where we saw the very dry soils and the very brittle trees, uh, after a very hot summer and, and very hot fall. Uh, and you'll remember that windstorm in 2015 that brought down um, many trees in the Lower Mainland, especially in, in areas like Vancouver, where you have those really large tree canopies um, near wires and electrical infrastructure. Um, so that was one of our largest storms in history, about 700,000 customers out at the peak of that storm. And um, and we're looking at conditions right now that are that are very similar to that. So that's why we're uh, we're letting customers know that they should be as prepared as possible. Uh, have that emergency kit with 72 hours worth of supplies. So things like water, um, things like an external cell phone charger, which is which is something that is is really needed nowadays when we're so dependent on our technology. So having that charged up. Um, ready to go and in your emergency kit for uh, the in the event of an extended outage. I mean extended outages are rare, mm-hmm. um, but when they do happen, being without your phone for a day to three days uh, for for many folks that's um. That's a daunting thing to have yes. happen.
1: A few yeah. hours, Susie, is a daunting <laughs> yeah. thing for people yeah, to have. Yeah, yes. To be completely honest, <laughs> that's so true. Uh, so, does BC Hydro have their own meteorologists, or do you also rely on kind of Environment Canada for this?
5: So, both. We have in-house meteorologists that that track storms very carefully to make sure that we can deploy crews in the right places. That we're tracking storms really carefully, um, and also, you know, of course, we we rely on Environment Canada as well. And One of the major things we're doing to limit this damage from dead and weakened trees and that we've been doing is just preparing for storm season year-round. And storm season almost is year-round now. Um, the traditional storm season that we used to have um, is, is sort of because of climate change being turned on its head. So we have our crews performing regular maintenance work all year round to help minimize the impact of, of trees and vegetation. So like inspecting trees and uh, vegetation growing near our infrastructure just to identify problems. And um, we have a lot of trees in D.C. Oh, we do. And, yes. Yes. I mean, we're lucky. It's, it's a beautiful place to live. Um, But trees and, and bad weather, they're the single biggest cause of power outages in B.C., so more than half of all power outages are caused by trees and bad
1: weather. All right. Well, you're gonna be busy over the next couple of days, Susie. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> yes, keep it up. You're gonna need that. So thank you for joining us this morning. Okay, bye. That is so Susie Reader, who's the spokesperson for BC Hydro. Uh, yes, they're going to be very busy and they want us to all be prepared. So stop and think about that for a second in your house here. And and you may think, oh my power never goes out. It just you can never tell these days, right? So be prepared. Ask yourself, Do I do I have the matches? do I have the candles? Do you have the external you know, charger for your phone that's all charged up so that you can still use your phone if you need to, if the power goes out? That is a big one. So this morning is a good time to think about all of that because yes, the forecast is calling for some very gusty incoming winds right now, uh, 60 kilometers an hour inland, more than that near the water. And as Susie pointed out, uh, lots of trees with root systems there that have been most well, suffering over the last few months with the drought conditions that we had never mind the last couple of years so yeah they're worried about the infrastructure what that means if trees start to fall over in this wind and this heavy rain that we're going to be getting uh yeah that's a big concern so make sure you are prepared and we'll let you know what is happening out there also be prepared potentially for ferry cancellations today i know they're keeping an eye on that too this is mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. So why are you going to keep hearing the phrase Michelin star today? Well, that is because anybody involved in the restaurant industry in Vancouver, pretty excited about what is going on this evening. That is when we will find out which restaurants in Vancouver will be given a coveted star from the Michelin Guide. This is the first time this has happened in Vancouver. It is big business. It is kind of like an international coveted thing to have a Michelin star. And they've only recently come to Canada. They did Toronto about six weeks ago. And tonight is the night that they are going to announce the Michelin starred restaurants for Vancouver. And you wonder, well, how do they do this? It's The system that they do this is so great because they're anonymous. You don't know who the Michelin inspectors are. They go in multiple times to restaurants, different times, you know, different um, you know, different times of day. So they're getting lunch service, different services, and they're just, they want to know how the regular people are treated at a restaurant and that's how they determine. So it's it's really cool how they do it. How big of a boost is this for Vancouver restaurants? We're going to find out. Ian Tossenson is with us, president of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Morning, Ian.
6: Hey, morning, Sydney. How are you doing?
1: Good. Are you psyched about this? Oh, it's really
6: awesome. I mean, it's just like a – it's kind of fun. Um, you know, reading about Michelin, um, there's some things that stuck out. There's only about 60 restaurants in all of the world that that have a Michelin rating of some sort, so you can have one, two, or three stars. Toronto recently were awarded uh, one two-star and then 12 one-stars, and then 12 what they call bid um, gourmand, which is basically uh, really good food at really good prices. And so it's – I don't know how they ever get restaurant reservations in Vancouver because I can't <laughs> to get in and do this stuff. But right. they do what one star is generally takes about four visits and two stars, is about 10 visits and to get to uh, three stars. So there's a real process in this. And it goes back to the early 1900s. And, and I think it's going to be just great for the food scene of Vancouver. Absolutely.
1: Right. Because I think anybody who comes here, especially if you're an international tourist, if you're a bit of a foodie, you the Michelin star means something, doesn't it?
6: Well, it, it totally does. Um, there's actually five things: quality, harmony of flavors, the uh, artistry in cooking, um, how the chef—this is cool—and how the chef's personality is comes through in the cuisine, in the cuisine, and then the consistency when they make their visits back and forth. So, uh, you're right; it is anonymous. They pay for it themselves. No one knows who these people are. They're mysterious. But I always try to find how this is going to help the overall industry. And I can see people coming to Vancouver, you know, going to a Michelin restaurant, um, international recognition would be great. But there's so many good restaurants that will not become Michelin restaurants. For some reason, interestingly, some restaurants don't want it because it's a real investment and in consistency of continuous investment in your staff and continuous investment in your food. It is a lot of pressure. So, some people say, you know what, I, I don't want to do that. Um, the the uh, a gentleman in Las Vegas, uh, Joel uh, Robichon, who is yes. a uh, five star restaurant, three star restaurant in uh, Vegas, he claims that a one star, your business will go up 20%, two stars, 40%. Wow. If you're a three star, it'll go up 100%. But. All these people are, are not going to go there every night, so they 're going to go to the rest of our who's, you know culinary scene in Vancouver and, and area and find some just wonderful restaurants out there that aren 't Michelin, but are just wonderful restaurants because we really do have an elevated food experience in Vancouver.
1: We do, and now this feels like there's going to be some international recognition of that. But you raise an excellent point as well, Ian, is even if you try to go out to a restaurant now, good (laughs) luck getting a reservation, right?
6: Yeah. Yeah, how do these people do this judging? We go, sorry, you can't get a reservation for six months or three months. So... And I'm sure they're not saying, well, I'm from the Michelin Guide, so can we get in? So I guess they, this is obviously pre-planned months and months and months in advance.
1: It really and, is.
6: And their visits. Yeah, it's really, really cool. So it's, they're awarding the, uh, the the winners tonight at uh, the Convention Centre at 7.30. So we'll see who's on. I'm sure there'll be some Restaurants that we all know will be on that list, and I'm sure they're going to be very proud of their accomplishments.
1: Oh, I'm sure too. I was talking to actually a local chef about this, who I'm pretty sure he's one of the people who's definitely going to get a star tonight. And he was (laughs) saying how stressful it is, though, too, because if you, you know, you don't really want two Michelin stars, one is great, but you get two, and then you have to worry about losing that second one because Michelin does that too, right? They'll take a star away, and that's devastating for a restaurant if a star gets taken away.
6: Totally. There's a story I read. Uh, uh, restaurant and uh, had the star taken away in Europe and their business plunged by seventy six percent. These are like, what's wrong? Why did why did Simi lose her Michelin rating? Must be something weird about that. So it is it, you have to walk a fine line. I was talking to a chef last week and he got an email and said, hey, what are you doing next uh, uh, Thursday night? And he goes, well, I'm in my restaurant cooking. <laughs> Who else would I be? He said, well, no, you really have to um, be at this event. And he said, well, I, I can't because I'm too busy. They said, no, we really think you should uh-huh. be there. So there's-, so there's at least one winner in Vancouver. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> I know, and the rumors have been going around quite a bit. I, I, I could think of at least two places where I've heard that, oh, no, they're definitely getting one. So this is yeah. great. I think this is great for the industry overall. Um, is this the kind of boost that it needs right now? Because there's obviously still, even in terms of um, getting a reservation, is that about a staffing shortage, do you think? are like yeah. is there there's still some stuff that needs to be brought up to speed here.
6: Yeah. you know, Staffing shortages is a huge one. And, you know, we're dealing with inflation, all that stuff that, you know, is getting kind of this is this this is such a positive story. We need more of these kinds of stories, it, even just beyond restaurants. It's just a cool business story for Vancouver. So I think it's going to lift spirits in general. And um, we are, you know, we're slowly getting out of the muck with, you know, with our labor situation Um clearly as i said before we we need way more immigration skilled foreign workers in, in canada and the federal government is trying to streamline that but um you've seen a lot of restaurants maybe closing on certain days certain hours uh curtailing their operations a bit to try to make sure they don't burn out their staff but you know we we as you know this industry fights back pretty hard and they always find a way to solve these things so this is just like icing on the cake tonight
1: Okay, I love that icing on the cake. Uh, any predictions <laughs> as to how many do you like? Have does anybody get tipped off on this? Have you been tipped off on this?
6: No, I, no, I wasn't even invited to the ceremony. Although I'm not going to be here, but because um, this is uh, Michelin in Canada is really being driven by the uh, tourism associations uh, throughout Canada, which is uh, really good. It's
1: huge. Yeah. I don't know.
6: I'm going to say um, so. They had one two star in Toronto and twelve one star. So I'm going to mm-hmm. go. Uh, two two stars and six one stars. Look in, at you so two two and six. Yeah, <laughs>
1: okay. I'm writing all this down, Ian. So, with your yeah, predictions,
6: okay. and then uh, what do you get? 12 bid, uh, bid gourmand. In yeah, Toronto. so let's do eight in Vancouver.
1: All right, okay. I like this. We're gonna have to check in with you then and find out how this okay. goes after the announcement <laughs> tonight. But Ian, thank, okay, thank you. Okay. City. That's Ian Dostonson, president of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. So yes, this is a very big night. Today, a lot of nervous, I would say, chefs and restaurateurs here in the city as they wait to find out which one of them is going to potentially get a Michelin star. Will anybody get two Michelin stars? That's huge. If you're a foodie like me, then you know what this actually means. And yeah, it is a huge tourism thing too. To be able to say that you're a Michelin-starred chef that will then go before your name anytime people talk about you or write about you. So it's a very big deal. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Creepy. I love that theme. I love that movie. And, yes, this is a great time of year, Halloween right around the corner. This is going to be, I think, a big weekend for having a good time for a lot of people. It's also our Raji Sohal's favorite time of year. Raji, don't you love this movie?
3: Oh, I just the music alone puts me in the spirit for Halloween. And to me, the timing of Halloween is kind of perfect, actually. I've come around on this one because it's happening on Monday. We have this nice lead up over the next few days to actual Halloween. Wait a minute. Did we not have a conversation a couple of weeks ago? I'm always open to changing my mind. (laughs) You convinced me. Monday is now the ideal day to have actual Halloween. Yeah, something to look forward to, right? Yes, yes. Everyone's going to start, you know, getting ready for this weekend. And then by the time Halloween actually comes around, it's going to be like, oh, an evening of quiet trick or treating and then you're done. It's good. Then we move on with our lives and start looking forward to Christmas.
1: Oh, my goodness. So so soon. No, no, you can't do that. You can't do anything holiday like decorations, Christmas until after Remembrance Day. That is a, a very hard rule for me.
3: Oh, okay. That's yeah. that's new. I haven't heard that one before. I thought like a set the second that Halloween no. is done, you're supposed to no. get out the decorations. Okay, well I had to check in with some Halloween like bona fide Halloween experts and ask them what the Halloween occasion is all about. My name is Laura and my favorite thing of Halloween is getting treats. I really you can brother. choose one. Yes.
7: Okay, my favorite part of Halloween is is going trick or treating, seeing the decorations, and the carving pumpkins. Well, I have ache,
5: so I don't feel like- my name is Elizabeth, and I like going trick or treating. My name is Sheena, and, and I like going trick or treating.
3: What's is- your favorite thing? It can't be trick or treating anymore. What's? Tell me something that you like about Halloween. I
7: don't like about Halloween going. Down. Home.
3: <laughs> after the party yeah. and what are you going to dress
2: up
7: as
3: this year a princess my favorite
7: part of Halloween is getting candy, yes. <laughs> you
3: <still can't> candy. <laughs> the best part of Halloween is trick-or-treating you can't say trick-or-treating anymore it's got to be something different uh, what do you yeah. like about Halloween uh, that you get to trick or treat with your friends that's fun. <laughs> and tell me what the scariest thing is about Halloween. It's that
1: it's really dark.
3: It's really dark?
1: Yeah and you can see lots of scary shadows. Because oh, I went that- at Costco and I saw the fire coaster and I thought it was really cool.
3: What is your favorite candy to eat? Uh, lollipop. Why do you like lollipops? Because they're colorful. Okay. And they're tasty. And what's the scariest thing you've ever seen? A dragon. You saw a real dragon?
1: Um, Raji, can I just say I giggled all the way through that because those were some. Some of those answers were quite deep. Like they were, like I love the kid who went to Costco and saw the firefighter's costume and fell in love with it.
3: <laughs> yeah, adorable. the the kids The kids trying to get them to stray from saying that trick or treating is the best part was impossible. I literally said to them, "It has to be. You have to like something other than trick or treating." And they're like, "Yeah, I like trick or treating. No, it's all
1: about so... the candy. It's all." And the one the child who also said that lollipops are his favorite. And then you said, why? And he said, because they're colorful. I thought that's so sweet, right? That's lovely. Um, I had a problem with Halloween candy because I had bought it way too early at my house. So it kept getting eaten. Yeah. Kept disappearing, kept disappearing. And so finally I realized, you know what the problem in this house is? Everybody here loves chocolate. We are not candy people. We are chocolate people. So then I went back to buy more candy, and this time I bought candy. I bought, you know, and no one wanted to eat it. It's it's been untouched for a week. It's just, <laughs> which is great. So I've got this giant bag of what Costco calls that funhouse candy bag. You know, I've got this huge yes. bag sitting there untouched touched. I was like, so that was the secret to keeping the Halloween candy.
3: That's the key. Now, I don't know if you've noticed that bowl. There's this ominous bowl in the office that has had various Halloween candy in it. None of it, which I would be tempted to go for. But clearly, some of our office mates are into it. Well, I've seen things like Rockets in there. Yes. Gross. <laughs> Chalk candy. Like, no, I would mm-hmm. never eat that. But then also, uh, like lint Christmas chocolates. I guess people give those
1: out at Halloween. If they've got them in the closet or the pantry, yeah, sure they do. Here's the other thing. The workplace is the single greatest dangerous place to be the day after Halloween. And that is because everybody brings candy that is either left over from trick-or-treating or whatever into work. And there's so much of it.
3: Yeah, that's going to be me, but it's going to be the kids' candy. Like I'm bringing all of their loot into the office what? and dumping it in that bowl. Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> no, I told you I'm doing Switch Witch with them. And this is where they hand the candy and they trade it in to the switch witch, and instead they get to pick out a toy or a book. Uh, but my kids have decided that one is going to switch hers for books, and the other one is going to switch her bag of loot for higher quality candy. So she's going to go. We're going to go to a chocolate shop, and she's going to get a chocolate box. <laughs>
1: For, so you're gonna take her to you're shaking your yes. I, you're gonna take her to Purdy's and be like okay you hand me this giant you know pillowcase full of candy and I will buy you six of these chocolates one you're gonna have it in her mind that she's gonna think that that's incredibly expensive chocolate right <laughs> it's like the True. ultimate and then True. you know what you're gonna the value of it foist all the other chocolate on us I think every parent has a different approach right to dealing with the candy mine was a one a day one a day and you know what guess what after about a week or so they forget about it and you don't actually have to do anything because then you can get rid of it after that but they it really only lasts for like a week maybe two and then they forget all about their Halloween candy
3: I do I've never heard of that my parents they just like so my dad you know Father of five children, we would lay out all of our bags, take all the goodies out. He would make sure there was wasn't anything in there that we weren't supposed to be eating. Um, and apart from that, he said, "Just have at it; it's yours." Wow. And so we would eat until we got sick. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> and we would get so sick that we would be have no choice but to stop eating the candy. And then, yes, it was, you know, done in a few days and it certainly did not last for weeks in my house no way you just eat the good stuff first and then you end up with like the candy corn on oh, day three corn. and dispose of that
1: I would love to hear from parents out there about how they approach this um, so you do the switch which and so I, my kids are too old. They're not trick-or-treating anymore by far. But I would love I to so. hear from parents about what they, what the rules are for them and the, all the candy that their kids collect. How do you deal with that at your house? Would love to hear that. Simi at cknw.com. And are you out and about this weekend with your kids? You know
3: what? I have been designated this year to be the one to actually – Stand at the door, wear a costume, and give out candy. So that's what I'll be doing on actual Halloween. But then this weekend is going to be a big one for us. We're going to go to uh, a um, boulevard, show off your pumpkin thing in my own neighborhood. But then we're also going to my favorite every year, which is the Parade of Lost Souls. That's on Saturday night at the Britannia Community Center. It's free for everybody to attend and people go all out for oh, it, Simi. Awesome. like spooky art installations and then costumes for the parade. That's what I'm really looking forward
1: to. Oh, so many good things going on this weekend. I know Halloween related. I know it's going to be raining, but that's OK. We need the rain and people can enjoy Halloween, too. Uh, have fun. Thanks, Raji. Thanks, Simi. That's our Raji Sohal there. And yes, parents out there, what is your approach to dealing with all the Halloween candy? What rules do you have at your house? Let's hear it, simmy at cknw.com or call our buzz line 604 331 2899. You can text our buzz line too. This is Mornings with Simmy on 980 CKNW. Brian is like the foundation of our team. He's the type of player that does everything, does everything well.
2: Coming from the side, score! Brian it.
7: Brian always wanted to be the best. That there was out there.
1: Legend. I know it's a little hard right now for hockey fans in this town, so you know what? Let's focus less on the scores and scandals and all that, and more on some inspirational stories, shall we? And there is none better than the one that we are about to talk about. Brian Trottier has won seven Count them, seven, Stanley Cups. six as a player, one as an assistant coach. And, of course, back in the day, well, we Vancouver Canucks fans remember this. He broke our hearts in 82, right, when he played for the New York Islanders. But we're going to put that aside for today because you really should read Brian Trottier's book. It's called All Roads Home. It talks about his career, being Canada's most decorated Indigenous athlete, and he joins us this morning. Thank you so much for being here.
7: Well, thank you, Simi. Wonderful introduction. My God, thank you very, very much. Pleasure to be on the show. Thank you.
1: Well, you know, your book is so lovely. Look what you've gotten to this point in your career, is this when you decided that it's time to sit down and tell some stories?
7: Well, at this point in my life, it was uh, you know it, it, I've been asked a long time to write a book. You know, through my career and coaching career, and I just didn't want to give away any strategies. I didn't want to like let no people what I'm thinking. You know, you just kind of guard it, I guess. And I'm I'm a, kind of an open book now. I've been telling stories here, going to native communities and speaking engagements, and you know, just telling stories to the grandkids. And every now everybody's like, "You should write a book. You should write a book." Well, I, you know, we started putting some of these stories down and. Uh, Stephen Brunt, you know, jarred my memory on reminiscing with some of this stuff, and next thing you know, you got a pretty good outline. And by God, now we got a, Now we got a little baby who was born here. So yeah, I'm pretty proud of it. I, I think it's a wonderful reflection on my life. Uh, it, it pays tribute to a lot of people who helped me have these successes: parents, obviously, community, and teammates. Tiger Williams, and you know, all my buddies, Mike Bossy, and Dennis Potvin and mario lemieux and you know there's some there's some there's some wonderful stuff in there and i think uh, people get a little per- different perspective and some of the stuff they all know me as a hockey player there's some of the stuff that i you know just kind of being a dad and a grandpa and raising kids that kind of fun stuff Yeah,
1: all that great fun stuff how important was it to you as well brian to and and i know you do this now going out to those communities and talking to those kids and showing them that listen this is possible i did this and this is a path for you too
7: well, it's been wonderful. The hospitality and the invites just keep coming, and John Shabbat does a wonderful job of organizing our our alumni team and and a lot of these different uh, visits. So, like to me, it's it's an opportunity to be a positive influence, obviously. But we want to leave a message and and just tell the story about my path. Uh, you know, my dream, and then my path to, to, to some of these accomplishments. But I. I think it doesn't matter what your dream is. It can be music, it can be art, it can be whatever. Um, you know, just uh, the wonderful thing about having a dream and the powerful dream and uh, looking for support along the way and uh, I guess just uh, embracing your bloodlines and recognizing your talents and uh, there's just a lot of talent in the Native communities, but like me, they're a little shy and they don't want to leave home, a little homesick. And, everybody is i think everybody gets a little homesick yeah. and that's why it's all roads home because uh everything i do is kind of a reflection of where i come from my canadian roots and you know obviously my parents and, and my heritage and that kind of stuff and when you embrace all that stuff i think good things powerful things can happen and i made it from little belle marie all the way to new york city on and on and i just <laughs> i just love sharing those stories because uh the kids get the kick out of it and the parents and the teachers and i think it just kind of like uh hopefully uh Influencers inspire some some student athletes or some people that have uh, yeah. some good dreams to, to go go forward.
1: Oh, sure, it would. You said you just grew up Marie, Saskatchewan, son of a Cree Chippewa Métis father, Irish Canadian mother. How did you navigate that?
7: Well, we were uh, kind of uh, taught early just to embrace our heritage, and you know, having Grandma and Grandpa Trache um, in town and. Going over for a bouillon soup, and we never knew what we were going to was going to be floating in that soup because it was it was something different every day. And the mom's side of the family over in Climax, and just understanding the how how respected they were, and um, you know, in the community as farmers and you know, athletes, Uncle John, Uncle Don, and and my mom, and it was just really kind of kind of neat to see both sides of of my bloodlines, and uh, I kind of felt at home both ways. So like to me, it was uh, acceptance and understanding diversity at a really young age, and. Just recognizing that there was any discrimination, which I didn't feel a lot of, like my dad or my grandparents did, obviously. But you know, if they they were just jealousy, and then we'd say to ourselves, "Wow, okay." Uh, if you got called a bad name, like a half breed, I was like, "Well, you're kind of a half breed too. You're you're Scottish and German." They, or they want to play?" And they go, oh, "Okay, yeah, but I guess you know you kind of break down some of that stuff." And uh, great buddies, you know, we're we're a very diverse community, little Valmarie, and um, but very you know mindful, yeah. vibrant, and still buddies today.
1: Oh, I love that. Let's talk about hockey here, too. Uh, When you look back at your career, and and when I I say it like that, seven Stanley Cups, right? Six as a player, one as an assistant coach. And some of those teams that you played on, I mean, Brian, come on. Like, some of those players, that is amazing. Can you even single out, when you think back, the greatest player that you ever played with?
7: Well, you know, it's the kind of who's who of hockey, those Islander-Penguin teams, and you know, obviously, uh, my captains Dennis Potman, Mary Lemieux, Hall of Famers. Uh, my my right winger, Mike Bossy, Hall of Famer. He's he, he's probably my my greatest player in my mind. Clark Gillies on the left side. I think is our greatest line, obviously. And you know, all of the great players I played: Butch Goring, Bobby Moore. I think they're all Hall of, Hall of Famers: John Finley, Bobby Nyström. You know, I can go through our whole list: Billy Smith. But it's when you look at look at the team and. We had in Pittsburgh and all the Stanley Cup teams. You know, I I think uh, you need everybody. And uh, when you recognize that everybody has a little value, everybody brings their best game, and you look at each other's eyes at the end of it, you say, wow, what an accomplishment. And then you can share that with all the fans and your community and your friends and your buddies back home. I mean, it's just a tremendous, tremendous feeling and emotional time. And um, just, you know, adrenaline makes you remember all this fun stuff. And uh, I just kind of threw it down in a book.
1: Well, that's why we have to read the book. Uh, what Your favorite memory? Do you have, like, on all those Stanley Cups, out of all the career that you've had in hockey, what was the greatest moment? Is your a favorite Stanley Cup moment?
7: Well, without a doubt, I think, uh, you know, like people ask, what are your greatest moment? And it's when Bobby Nystrom scored the overtime goal against Philadelphia that made me a champion for the first time, because that's a dream come true, and brought me back to being an eight-year-old when I saw Jean Bellable raise the cup over, you know, and hug that cup, and raise it up and I want to be like Jean Belliveau and I want to be like Gordie Howe from like my, my province of Saskatchewan and uh, you know and then you know the really kind of the cool thing is that moment of 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 recognizing this is my dream come true and then to be able to meet some of your boyhood idols like Jean Belliveau handed me the Calder trophy when I won it in 1976 and Gordie Howe handed me the, the scoring championship when I won it in 79 and you you meet these folks and you just say, my God, they're, 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 they're they're as nice as people as they are, great champions. They're wonderful ambassadors. I want to be like them. So really I'm proud of our, our most, all of our NHL guys for the ambassadorship they have and um, all the young, young players in the league right now, because we're all ambassadors, of great game of hockey in the NHL. And we carry that with pride.
1: You know, I kind of feel like that right now talking to you because you gave me that opportunity. So Brian, thank you so much for joining us on the show this morning.
7: Simi, absolute pleasure. Thank you. Look forward to seeing everybody in Vancouver.
1: Yes, that's right. That's Brian Trottier. He's got an event coming up here in Vancouver. It's on Tuesday, November 8th. It's at 7 o'clock at the Vancouver Public Library's Central Branch. So check out the Vancouver Public Library online to get more information. But you can go and see Brian Trottier in person. The book is called All Roads Home. You should definitely check it out. What a great memoir and what a great history of hockey there. This is Mornings with Simi on 980- One more thing we want to talk about this morning, and it's so important because we talked earlier about how the government has announced that it plans to make some historic changes to the province's child welfare laws, uh, laying a path to essentially upholding Indigenous jurisdiction. How is this going to work? And how significant is this? Well, joining us is Judy Wilson, Secretary-Treasurer of the Union of British Columbia Indian Chiefs. Judy, thank you for joining us. Yeah, good morning. How long has this been worked on, Judy?
8: Well, it's been decades. Uh, you, as you know, The uh, we've had the child caravan. We've had, uh, you know, ever since the 1969 white paper policy, where we've seen how the government was continuing to oppress us through legislation and policy. It started decades and years ago. And then uh, what we've been working on lately is the implementation of the C92 where we have Indigenous jurisdiction of our child and family but also the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People both provincially and federally so of course legislation has to change mm-hmm. but worst of all it's because of all the continued the removal of our children and many equate that to residential school which you know hundreds of thousands were removed forcibly to, to residential schools but the Uh, Although the data needs to be more uh, updated, I guess, you know, for the how many kids were actually uh, removed through the child welfare system. Uh, You know, we've had the Canadian human rights uh, tribunal decisions. We have also had, you know, a lot of information regarding, you know, we want to uh, reverse that because so much percentage of our children are still in care.
1: Yes. Are you hopeful then that this is what is going to make a difference?
8: Well, right now the, the the legislation was introduced, so they have to go through a whole process to 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 get it finalized. But it's an all party approach, which uh, in the legislature yesterday, when I was doing my uh, acknowledgement of it, my our, our statement to the union BC in chiefs, and I'm part of the First Nations Leadership Council with uh, Cheryl Krasner and Regional Chief T.G. were the leads on children and family. Uh, you know. We, did, we were very clear that, you know, the intent is required, the province will be required to recognize, respect, and affirm our Indigenous laws, customs, and traditions. And that wasn't the way it was before. And then the province can't adopt a child out of our family or community without our consent and the consent of our nation. And the province can no longer operate according to the colonial system of imposing their values and must make the transition to a system that makes space, respect, and uplifts Our First Nations customs, values, jurisdiction, and authority. So, those are really major changes and shifts uh, that would be happening with the amendments that are being proposed.
1: Right. So, how long, though, then? So, how, when we can see that this might actually affect change, how much longer do we have to wait before this is in effect?
8: Well, they have the legislative processes that they have to go through. And, of course, we know there's either we're on the eve of a change uh, with the uh, leadership, with the NDP, and things like that. But it seems like with an all-party approach here, you know, those changes will be inevitable because, uh, you know, with the UN Declaration, they supported that uh, in the House as well. But the actual implementation and the bureaucracy, that's always the big question on how do we make these policy and legislation changes. But the bigger question is how effectively will we be at implementing them?
1: Right, okay, so there's still some time here. Clearly, a few things have to be worked out, some of these details, right, Judy?
8: Uh, Of course, and we have the flat-scene by-law. Where does that fit in? How's that going to be implemented? And then we have all the uh, C-92 jurisdiction uh, bands that are at the table also uh, working out their coordination agreements. And then we have the uh, agencies, and then we have the 84... uh, First Nations that are outside of uh, agencies, right? And you know, so there's a a mix to work with, and you know, I I never lump everybody in under one thing because uh, every uh, how set out there.
1: Okay, I think we're losing you there, Judy. So sorry about that. Your phone is cutting in and out, but. You know, we'll say say thank you for joining us. That's Judy Wilson, Secretary-Treasurer of the Union of British Columbia Indian Chiefs, talking about the historic changes that are on the way to child welfare legislation in this province. It paves the way for Indigenous communities to provide their own child and family services, and the government services kind of go into the background of that and support those services instead. So still some work to do, as Judy said there, too. We will continue to hear about that story.